On my orders, the United States military has begun strikes against al-Qaeda terrorist training camps and military installations of the Taliban regime in Afghanistan. The name of today's military operation is Enduring Freedom. We will not waver. We will not tire. We will not falter. And we will not fail. Two decades of occupation, more than a trillion dollars, more than a hundred thousand civilian lives. And now... I'm now the fourth American president to preside over war in Afghanistan. I will not pass this responsibility on to a fifth president. I will not mislead the American people by claiming that just a little more time in Afghanistan will make all the difference. These are the scenes pouring in from Afghanistan on its first day after the Taliban took the capital, Kabul, the fall of the Afghan government, the ongoing chaos at its airport, and the new reality that's set in. I made a commitment to the American people when I ran for president that I would bring America's military involvement in Afghanistan to an end. While it's been hard and messy, and yes, far from perfect, I've honored that commitment. There's a constant stream of helicopters over the city, and at the airport, at least five people have been killed in the turmoil. It's not immediately clear how... Our mission to degrade the terrorist threat of al-Qaeda in Afghanistan and kill Osama bin Laden was a success. Our decades-long effort to overcome centuries of history and permanently change and remake Afghanistan was not. Afghans, residents, and those fearing reprisals from the Taliban were still flooding the area Monday, desperately trying to find a way out of the country. Taliban soldiers have seized the presidential palace. The president has fled. Commercial flights out of Kabul have been suspended. There have been scenes of desperate... Afghanis clinging to US military planes as they take off, some falling from the sky to their deaths. It's simply surreal to see what, what has happened. Think of a government as a table. Ideally, what supports the tabletop is the support of the public. But in Afghanistan, the government has essentially been propped up not so much by public support, but by coercive institutions like the police, the army, the intelligence service. In other words, the legs of the table, so to speak, have basically been rotten, and the Afghan government has only managed to bear the weight of the Taliban insurgency due to the structural support of the US-led mm. coalition. New Zealand was part of that coalition. We had some tough decisions to make. Cabinet will decide whether New Zealand can evacuate fewer than 40 Afghanistan nationals who supported our military efforts there. And on Monday, the Prime Minister announced New Zealand would step up to the plate. The Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern has announced the government will also bring back Afghan nationals who have assisted New Zealand and their immediate family members. We're at a period here where the whole world is watching. The Taliban are making claims about the kind of administration they wish to be. Here, we would implore them, allow people to leave safely. I'm Emile Donovan, and today, the detail on Afghanistan, starting with the fundamentals. What is the Taliban and where did it come from? Well, that's a really interesting question because it's kind of morphed over time. But before there was ever the great long 20-year war, the Taliban was a religious political movement. Nikki Hager is a journalist, researcher and co-author of the book Hit and Run, along with 
fellow journalist John Stevenson. That evolved in Pakistan mainly and grew in Afghanistan and took over, but it was a very flimsy sort of non-government force that was dominating a pretty lawless country when we got to 2001, before all of this began. What happened with Afghanistan in the years before that is that it was a it was a proxy war of the Cold War. The Soviet Union was drawn into a war there, you might say, and then bogged down in the war there with the active cooperation of the Central Intelligence Agency of the United States. And so they fought out a war with terrible cost of life and and running down of services and things. And, and by the time the Soviet Union collapsed and the war was over, it was a, a completely failed state where they, it just happened that the Taliban, these slight religious extremists, were able to fill the vacuum. Mindful of that, is it fair to say that, in the beginning at least, the Taliban were almost welcomed in a sense for providing at least some degree of stability, however draconian that stability may have been? Yes and no. They were also, it depends which part of the country you're from, because it's a country made up of tribes who are also hostile and fighting each other. And so some parts of the country welcomed it and got and got security from it and actually had someone who could adjudicate when you've got your stock stolen or something. But in other places there was horrible ethnic cleansing and oppression. In a broad kind of sense, what is life under the Taliban like? It's a life. Most people go to work and run their farms, but there's where they're being oppressive, they impose a very strict, very old-fashioned, conservative, moralistic code on the public. One teenager tells me he got 40 lashes for watching a Bollywood film. Mobile phones are banned for ordinary people, as is filming and playing instruments. And that's where, you know, like, women are treated abysmally, and, as I said, there are parts of the country like Abamian, where New Zealand, the New Zealand army was, who are historical enemy of the main powers of the Taliban, and so they're very vulnerable to violence and to repression. Let's go back to 2001. The World Trade Centre has been attacked by so Al-Qaeda. No right oh, there's another one. Another plane just hit. <gasps> Right. Oh, my God. Another plane has just hit. It hit another building. Flew right into the middle of it. Explosion. My God, it's right in the middle of the building. This one into the East Tower. Yes. Yes. Right in the middle of the building. The Taliban are essentially running Afghanistan at that stage, and the U.S. decides to invade Afghanistan. Why is that? If you want us to say, how did this, how did this mess ever happen? That is the moment that you have to blame, because some largely Saudi and other terrorists launched this audacious, terrible attack on the United States. And they weren't Afghan people. Osama bin Laden was living in Afghanistan, but he hadn't been the organiser of the attack. He was just kind of like a figurehead of the same movement. And so in its anger and rage, the United States decided it wanted to invade somewhere and chose Afghanistan, which made no rational sense at all. We went to Afghanistan in 2001 to root out al-Qaeda, to prevent future terrorist attacks against the United States planned from Afghanistan. We delivered justice to bin Laden a decade ago, and we've stayed in Afghanistan for a decade since. Our reasons for remaining in Afghanistan have become increasingly unclear, even as the terrorist threat 
evolved. Even before the first New Zealand troops arrived in that war in December of 2001, Osama bin Laden had already left. Very quickly it became clear that we had joined a war which nobody really understood what they were doing and they started to make excuses about how they'd gone to liberate girls and schools and things, which was never the reason for starting what became a more and more terrible war. What was the goal of the United States in invading Afghanistan? This is, this is at the heart of it. There wasn't a rational goal. I truly believe this. The goal was punishment. They said it was to, to stop Afghanistan being a, a safe haven for terrorist groups, but it didn't make any sense because there are plenty of other countries where there are more, more terrorist groups and more havens which weren't attacked. And what happened by invading Afghanistan was that they made a war that they couldn't get out of. So what has been happening in Afghanistan over these past two decades? Even in an idealised sense, you know, if you're talking to the head of the US operation, what do they think that they have been doing? And I mean, there have been technically democratic elections, right? Sort of. What they did was they installed a government there, which was, a, in my mind, would be a preferable government in some ways than the Taliban, without included warlords that had terrible corruption, like really extreme corruption, which was driving people away from it. And then they tried to prop this up by having a network of barbed wire bases dotted across the countryside where American troops and other countries' troops would would come out in their heavily armed vehicles and try to control the countryside. They weren't winning over the population. They were just occupying. And so the Americans stayed there. The Taliban learned very effective methods, tried and true methods of counterinsurgency warfare where they didn't have a pitched battle anywhere. They didn't have an open fight. They just wore away and wore away with roadside bombs and little attacks here and more bigger attacks there when they were least expected and went from being this genuinely extremely disorganized, essentially religious group, as we talked about earlier, to being a very well-organized guerrilla warfare army. Probably the most stinging criticism will be that President Biden underestimated the power of the Taliban to take over this quickly. The Taliban began their offensive this year in May, and it swept through the country very quickly, especially in the last two or three weeks. And everyone in this country who thought that we had established something in Afghanistan that might endure on its own was proven wrong. Afghanistan and and Vietnam are very similar. Can I give you some similarities? Please. First of all, the war never made much sense. The countries that went into it, the United States and its allies, had no clear objectives or exit strategy. Both of them have got, strangely enough, a long border with a country where the insurgents could hide across the border and get their arms there and have supply routes and things like that. So they were very similar situations. The, um, the main difference was that Vietnam, they could go through forests and try and hide in, hide in forests. But the Taliban learned these amazing skills of surviving on these bare, bony, dry, forestless hills with helicopters and drones and satellites and everything looking for them, and they still managed to do what the Vietnamese had done, which was just to stay and stay and stay until they exhausted the superpower. Last February, there was a... I I mean, it's been characterised as a sort of peace agreement between the US and the Taliban. Is that a significant landmark in, in, in the narrative of the war in Afghanistan? Actually, I don't think so. I think the Americans were dreaming. I think this it suited the Taliban to, to play along with that. But they, right from the beginning, they've had this 
Globe Bottle saying, they say, you people have got the watches, but we've got the time. And and that's real, I mean, it's a quite a deep philosophical thing. They've just thought, we're going to outlast you. And they've been organized enough and disciplined enough that they knew that sooner or later, the big powers would tire of it and leave. And that's exactly what's happened. I have to say, nobody, don't, it's, it's not fair to blame anyone, nobody on any side expected that the Taliban would move so fast. Two weeks ago, I was being told three months or something. I think no one had properly appreciated how well organized the Taliban was and how flimsy and superficial these Afghan forces were that we had supposedly been building up, empowering and arming to maintain democracy for the rest of time. There was People were living in a dreamland that the forces that had been built up would be strong enough and that the Taliban was less strong than it really was. So, ultimately, two decades of occupation, a tenuous and now failed, air quotes, democratic government, more than a trillion dollars spent, hundreds of thousands of people have been killed, and essentially all for naught. Yes. If we take anything out of the last 20 years of New Zealand involvement, it is that we should never have joined it. Why did we join it? I've written about this. I think if I had been Helen Clark and her government in the deep, cold, angry days after the September 11 attacks, I would have been saying, of course we're happy to help the United States in any way we possibly can in its moment of need. Mm. But the way we helped should not have been helping to invade a small country with no coherent reason for doing it. So I think we went for the wrong reasons, which was to look like we cared, although it's understandable. I think we stayed for much less worthy reasons, because I've read the cabinet papers on this. Every time a deployment finished, the Navy or the Air Force or the Army or the SAS would say, it's very important for our relations with our allies that we're seen to be showing, continuing to show commitment. So why don't we have these next deployments and now those deployments after that and those deployments after that. And so it was a real sort of a matter, it was a diplomatic issue. It was showing our willingness to be part of US-British war, which is just the most terrible reason to be part of a catastrophe like Afghanistan. Let's come back to the present day. The developments that have happened over the past few days have placed many people in Afghanistan in grave danger, people who helped the coalition forces over the past 20 years. What sorts of people are we talking about here? What did they do? You could run a war where you arrived in Afghanistan and you had your own cooks and your own interpreters and your own drivers and everything. But this was a slightly cut-price way of organising a hugely expensive war, was hiring local people. And it's all very fine... And there'll be somebody who, in a desperately poor country with a war going on who will take the work. But what happens when you leave? Because basically they're collaborators. In the eyes of the, of the people who win the war and who control the territory, they were the collaborators. They were helping the invaders. And so by the convenience of having local people working for you to make it cheaper and more uh, viable to maintain bases and travel and feed your crew, your um, soldiers and so on, you end up with this body of people who, in the eyes of the hostile Taliban forces and their, their sympathizers, are all over the country. You, you're on the wrong side. You're, you're on the wrong side. And, and they resent you for those years and years of oppression and death of their friends and all the rest of things that go on in the war. In other words, you're in deadly danger of retaliation. Have the Taliban signalled what will happen to these people if if they get their hands on them? 
Oh, heavens, yes. Oh, there's, there's n- they haven't put out a press release saying a list of who they're going to hurt, but they have been, through their local commanders and sub-commanders all over the country, nailing what are called night letters on people's doors, which are these terrifying one sheet of paper with a, with a crest of the with a stamp on the top of the, signifying the, the Taliban, and writing that you, Muhammad, someone or other, helped the foreigners and you are going to die, and nobody, nobody in their right mind doesn't take that seriously because because they usually are killed when that happens. You quite rightly say that the, you know these people were working; they were doing a job. But is that their only motivation? Do you think? No, for example, in Bamiyan, there were a lot of people there who were very grateful that the New Zealand forces were there because they are the, that they're natural enemies of the Taliban and have been oppressed horribly in the past and will very likely be horribly oppressed in the near future. And so they had a motivation to want there to be a New Zealand presence there. The tragedy of it is that we weren't really faithful to that on our side because as the Taliban got stronger and started to attack more and started to be more militarily vigorous in Bamiyan, that's when we left. As soon as some New Zealanders started to die, we left them to it. Mm. And they're, they're suffering as a result now, including all the ones who helped us, whose lives are in peril. Tell me about Omaid. Omaid's a friend of mine. Mm. When I was working on the Operation Burnham Inquiry, the Lawyers for the villages, this is Deborah Manning, the very fine refugee lawyer in Auckland, she had paid for by the by the inquiry um, the opportunity to have someone inside Afghanistan who was interviewing the villagers who had been affected and going and finding them and gathering information. And through my journalist contacts, I tracked down this guy who made and came to really like him. We worked a lot on on his missions, his dressing up, in um, obscure local people clothes and going into dangerous areas and interviewing people who'd, who'd been part of the Operation Burnham or their families had been. And so I came to like him very much and he he's a classic example of someone who, um, for his own reasons, because he cares about human rights and he's that kind of journalist, and for his commercial reasons, which was that he was being paid to do it, put himself at great risk to help a New Zealand endeavour. Omaid received a night letter. Yes, he did. And after he got it, he contacted me, and I've um, I've been helping him to try to find somewhere to go ever since. Yeah, because he's got he's got two very small children, one year old and three year old. He's got a wife, and he's got a country which is tumbling down around him. And when when we said that, when he made contact again relatively recently, he said he feels like his life is just a lottery now. He doesn't he doesn't know how long they're going to last. You and I are speaking, Nicky, just after a cabinet meeting. Jacinda Ardern has just an hour or so ago given a post-cabinet briefing. Can you tell me what she committed to in that briefing? Yes, it was great. What she said was, there are people who we haven't let in here before because they weren't judged under the 2012 policy to be allowed to have resettlement, 2012 meaning roughly when New Zealand left Afghanistan, or most of the troops did. But she said... Things have changed. Things are much more dangerous now. And therefore, there are people who worked for our troops who wouldn't have been allowed in under the old policy that we will try to let in now. We will try to get them out with their immediate families. And then I listened with my um, heart and my throat worrying 
And then finally, Joe heard the Chief of Defence Force and her said... In relation to Afghan nationals seeking to come to New Zealand, Cabinet has confirmed that we will continue to make every effort to support the repatriation of New Zealand citizens and permanent residents and immediate family members travelling with them and their dependents. In addition, we also made an in-principle decision to assist in evacuating Afghan nationals who work directly with the NZDF, New Zealand Police or MFAT, all provided material assistance to the Operation Burnham Inquiry, where there are reasonable grounds to believe that the safety or well-being of the individual or their immediate family has been put at risk from their association with New Zealand and Afghanistan. There are people who helped the Operation Burnham Inquiry, and there are four of them. And four of them, I think, means Omaid, his wife, and his two children. And um, I sat down at my desk and I cried with relief because they asked, that, because they have been so vulnerable, um, particularly because journalists generally are so vulnerable to, to the Taliban. They don't like them. It's spoken about like this is a done thing, but, I mean, the Taliban controls Afghanistan at the moment. It controls the airports. It controls the routes in and out of, of the country. Afghanistan is a landlocked country. <laughs> there are surely going to be tremendous difficulties in actually getting this to happen. Yeah, nothing is certain at the moment. We should be very clear about this. It's still a very dangerous time for the people concerned. The thing that gives me some hope is that there there's a massive American embassy there with 1,400 staff or something um, and all sorts of equipment that they need to get out. They can't get it out overnight. They need one or two weeks or something before they'll get all of that out at, at the minimum. And so other forces are going to be on our side, which is the Americans with thousands of troops there who are helping to protect the American interests, which will hopefully we can piggyback on to get enough time to get our people out too. And the lessons to be learned from all this? I guess my takeaway is that left to themselves, the New Zealand Defence Force would be writing the same kind of reports to the ministers that they did in 2001 and saying, we've got to go. This is as if there was a war the same again. They would be straight off wanting to go again without a coherent reason and without a plan and they could easily get us into the same kind of mess. And if we learn anything from this, like for a long time we'd learnt from Vietnam, that is not the role that most New Zealanders want us to have. And the time to, to, the time to, to avoid it is at the beginning, not 20 years later. Should we have gotten onto this sooner, do you think? Oh, heavens, yes. Um, as somebody who's been watching it for, and writing about it for the, virtually the whole of the 20 years, it has been maddening to watch the way that most news... If you were to do a survey of the news on our deployments in Afghanistan, the majority of the square inches of news or word, words of the articles um, was rah-rah stuff coming out of the military PR people. It, it was a disgrace. Most people barely understood that we were at war. They thought we were off there helping paint the back of the, of the school somewhere or something. They didn't understand that we were part of a catastrophic, ongoing, gradually worsening war. And that's because they weren't getting the truth, they were getting PR from things. And the lesson from that is we, we can't learn from what we're hearing at the time. We have to learn from the past wars, and then when they come along we have to be deeply sceptical when people are telling us that they know what they're doing and everything's as it should be, and we're there doing good in the world when we weren't. That's it for today. I'm Emile Donovan. The Detail is public interest journalism funded through New Zealand On Air and is a joint production between Newsroom and RNZ. You can download us free to your mobile phone every day on any podcast platform 
And if you'd like to get in touch, you can email us, the detail at rnz.co.nz. Blair Stagpole engineered this episode, Alexia Russell produced it, and thanks to Nikki Harker. Kaki te anō. <laughs>